We are now going to enter a new portion of the letter to Titus as Paul transitions, as we talked about a little bit briefly last time already, transitions to provide his co-worker in the ministry, Titus, with qualifications for leadership. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, and this morning we will start on a two-part series here looking at the qualifications for eldership that Paul spells out for Titus as he left Titus there on the island of Crete, a very rough, crude place to be. The population of that island was known for uh, its crudeness, and Paul was not able to stay for a a lengthy period of time, and so he entrusts to Titus the work of establishing the churches, setting order. In order to do that, Paul instructs Titus that he needs to find faithful men uh, to install in every congregation throughout the island, and that will be our focus now as we look at the qualifications of such men spelled out for us in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. To review where we came from already last time we were in Titus, we began looking at the title of that study was called From Chaos to Order. We looked at how God has established order for his churches and that he does this through faithful men. We saw in verses 5 and 6, Paul said this, For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach. We saw, as we will see again today, that 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 title there, that description above reproach, is the overarching description of the kind of men who are needed in every church, in every city across that island where there were believers But now as we continue looking at that list, we see that Paul spells it out for Titus in greater detail. And this is what we are going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the middle section of this paragraph. Paul goes on to say this in verses 6 and 7. He says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, that is, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion... For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Then he goes on to state this in positive terms in verses 8 and 9, which we will get to next time. He says, but is good, sensed, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is a very, very important text for churches, and it is a very penetrating text, and especially as I spent time with this, there was certainly a a very great degree of trepidation even in approaching these descriptions, for they describe the kind of men that God wants in leadership for the church. And I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But let's look at a review to, to again, usher us into this text since it's been a couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul evangelized this island of Crete after his first Roman imprisonment, and it probably was sometime in the years of AD 62 to AD 65, somewhere in that period of time after he was released from that Roman imprisonment, he did not stay on the island long enough to see the churches established, as he did at other times of his ministry, where he established those churches, including appointing leadership in those churches himself. He was not able to do that for some reason that is not necessarily spelled out in any of Paul's writings. He had to move on, but he leaves Titus there to establish the work and and crucial to this establishment of these new congregations, crucial in bringing the chaos into order was the appointment of elders, presbyteroi, older men or men of maturity, men of experience. But the question then is raised, what kind of men are fit for this appointment? They, They need to be 
mature men, but what, that's what we get to now in these verses from verses 6 to 9. Fundamentally, candidates were to be recognized, Paul says in verse 6, by the fact that there were no allegations made against their character. We looked at that briefly last time, that that word above reproach means that there, there is no one who is making accusation, a moral accusation against such a man, such a candidate, that sticks. They're unaccusable in a sense you could render that as. They are unaccusable. Now again, that's not to say that there won't be people who will have criticisms, but the issue is, will those criticisms, will those accusations of moral improprieties, will they stick? And Paul says to have to be very careful here. You have to make sure that as you appoint elders in every congregation, they cannot be men who have charges standing against them. Moral charges, charges of moral indiscretion. But to provide even greater clarity, Paul provides Titus now with a list of very specific characteristics in these verses that spell out this quality of being above reproach. Two of these, as we have already read, two of these focus on the man's reputation in the home. We're going to see that in the second half of verse 6. And then the remaining 12 have to do with the man's reputation in the congregations and in society in general. And there's a, a very deliberate logic and flow that Paul gives us in these verses that we're going to see in, in just a moment. Two fundamental qualities in the home, and then 12 among the congregations and in society in general. You could look at it this way as we move forward, that the, the term uh, above reproach, you're going to see that at the beginning of verse 6, and you're going to see that again, that same term used in verse 7. It's the umbrella term. It is that that term that assumes all the specific ones within it. In fact, it was uh, Jerome who said all the other characteristics are assumed in this one. And so Paul is going to instruct Titus to look for men according to their character in the home. He's going to instruct Titus to, in, to, to look for men who do not have allegations of impropriety that arise from within the man's family. And we're going to see there two required qualities that are spelled out in verse 6. And then he is going to look for men also who have no, who have no allegations against them made by those either in the church or in the community. And he's going to do that in verses 7 to 9. And as he does that, you're going to see that he's going to teach this or instruct Titus by both negative qualities or prohibited qualities, Titus, make sure they're not marked by these things, as well as by positive qualities, Titus, make sure they are marked by these things according to the reputation in the church and in the community at large. These 14 qualities that are provided here provided the standard to, to Titus by which you could assess and appoint candidates as elders. This was a checklist, and these characteristics remain the authoritative standard for evaluating candidates for eldership today. This is not just a description of what happened once upon a time on an island in the Mediterranean. This is, by God's design, the blueprint for leadership in every congregation that would ever exist that is church. Now, as we go through this then, as we go through verses 6 to 9, this is how we're going to approach it. We're going to look at it in terms of these two categories, these two spheres in which to evaluate men and their appropriateness for the work of oversight. First of all, evaluate elder candidates in the home. Evaluate elder candidates first in the home, verse 6, and then we are going to see how Paul instructs Titus to evaluate elder candidates then in the church, verses 7 to 9. But before you think this is just a text that is instructive as it relates to elder candidates, 
I want you to see something beyond that as we go through this study. This because it provides each one of you also with a blueprint for maturity. These qualifications that were to be identified in the men who are fit for the office are the very same characteristics that all believers must be striving for. Turn for just a moment to 1 Peter. This comes out in Peter's words, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, where the apostle Peter provides an exhortation somewhat similar to what Paul did here for Titus, but this is Peter's exhortation to elders who are already in the ministry, and this would have included all kinds of regions across modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Peter writes this in his first letter, beginning in verse 1, "...therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but voluntarily, according to God, and not for solid gain, but with eagerness." Not yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but, now notice this at the end of verse 3, proving to be examples to the flock. So as we move forward with this list of qualifications, this is not something where you sit back and, and think, well, this is only for a select group of men. This is only a set of qualities that relates to a a certain kind of giftedness or gifted men within the church, these are qualities that each one must strive after. This is the blueprint. And the Apostle Paul instructs Titus here to find these kinds of men because they were to be the examples for every local congregation for what sanctification and maturity looks like in real life. And that's what makes this, uh, this text so sobering, especially for anyone who is in leadership. These characteristics are not just for the elders, they are for the entire church. So let's dig into this now and look first at how Paul instructs Titus to evaluate elder candidates first in the home. Why is that so important? Let's look now at verse 6. Paul writes this, if any man is above reproach the husband of one wife. Paul begins this list of qualities by pointing immediately as a priority to the most definitive relationship in a man's life, and that is a relationship with his wife. Now, it's interesting to note also that when you look at this the list that Paul gave Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that there's much the same kind of construction that is given as Paul delivers similar qualities to to Timothy when he says this. He says in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So what is crucial here for the apostle Paul is he begins to think of what will bring order to the churches, what will establish churches on the right trajectory and provide the example for those in the church, Paul's mind immediately goes to the home, and even more specifically, he goes to the man's relationship with his wife. Now, of course, the immediate question that this raises, a question that for us is more difficult to answer than it would have for Titus, because Titus spoke the same language, and undoubtedly Paul and Titus discussed this much when they ministered together. But the issue is this. What does this quality actually mean? When we read this phrase, the husband of one wife, what does that mean? Now, throughout history, there have been various interpretations given of this. I, I just want to walk through it quickly, and then I want to leave is the appropriate understanding of this phrase. Let me walk through five views really quickly here. The first view is this. Some look at that and say, well, what Paul is instructing Titus to do is to find men who are married, that this is a requirement of marriage. The man must be married. He must be the husband of 
a wife. That's the quality that some would suggest that Paul is emphasizing. And there are some good reasons for that. Obviously, marriage was the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Go back to to Genesis chapter 2. It was the last thing that God created on day 6, marriage. As well, we know from the history of the Jewish people in particular that positions of leadership among the Jews were always expected to be filled by men who were married. There's some debate about this, but it was generally expected that to become a member of the Sanhedrin required a man to be married. Moreover, the argument goes that marriage mitigates the power of temptation. And marriage gives a man experience and wisdom that he would not otherwise have. Moreover, at the time, there was a push being made by some of the false Christian religions that were starting just to develop at that time, a push for things like celibacy. You can read of that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul describes some of those who are trying to merge the gospel with other forms of paganism and mysticism, and they were starting to teach that marriage was somehow unclean. And so the argument goes that what Paul is doing here is saying, no, marriage is not unclean. It's God's pinnacle of creation. Therefore, the man who would lead the church must be married. There's some con arguments to this. Obviously, first of all, Paul was not married. As far as we know, he could have been widowed. Uh, We don't know for sure, but when he writes 1 Corinthians, for example, which would have been about a decade before he writes to Titus, He does not describe himself as married, but instead as single. Jesus was single as well. And both Jesus and Paul taught about the the benefits of of marriage as well as singleness. They they, They do not teach that somehow singleness or marriage is somehow more spiritual other than the one who is not married will have more time to dedicate to the ministry. As well, it's important to note as we go through this list that a major argument against this first view is that this first view just emphasizes it's like filling out a census form and the question is, are you married or single? And then using that to determine who's fit to be an elder, one of the things. But Paul's emphasis is not on a status, it is on morality. And so this view really does not provide help in that way. A second view is this, and this was a common view that has been held uh, by commentators throughout is that Paul is, is, is uh, indicating that polygamy would automatically disqualify a man for leadership in the church. Now, we would agree with that, but is that what Paul is intending? And the issue here is, is that polygamy really wasn't ever a problem in the early church. We, we don't read of it anywhere in the early church. So if saying that elders must not be polygamists, it, it suggests then that maybe others in the church were. But there simply isn't enough evidence, there's none at all, to suggest that the early church ever had any problem with polygamy. Moreover, there is a similar phrase to this one, the husband of one wife, we read this in Mark 10, where Paul describes those who were found the role support the church. Paul describes them there as a wife of one man. So it just reverses the order of this phrase. And so if you would take this phrase here in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, as uh, an argument against polygamy, then you would have to take that same construction in 1 Timothy 5 verse 9 as an argument against what's called polyandry, the idea that a wife would have multiple husbands, but that just was never at all even an issue in the Greco-Roman or Jewish world. So that too does not seem to be what Paul's point is here. A third view is, is this, that a man must be married only once in life. He must be the husband of one wife and one wife only forever. And this is a view that has also been held by some. It was popular even in the early church because there was an idea that there is a special kind of dignity attached 
to a man who even after the passing of his wife would not go and remarry. This would mark this lifelong loyalty to a wife that even after death would not be broken. And you can even find this expressed by men such as S. Lewis Johnson, a very good Bible teacher of the 20th century. The idea that Paul is looking with such commitment to a covenant that during their life they would never, ever, ever break it, even should their spouse die and they have opportunity for remarriage. The problem with that, however, is that clearly taught, whether that's in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 or Romans chapter 7 verses 2 to 3, that death dissolves the marriage covenant, that it's, it's gone. It no longer exists. And if Paul taught that and encouraged even the young widows, for example, to remarry, what he established as an example for the flock to follow the idea of not getting remarried after the death of a spouse, why would he suggest that for leadership? That leads to a fourth view, one that's probably closer to Paul's intent, and it's this, that the man must not be divorced and remarried. In other words, he must be the husband of one living wife. In other words, not having multiple wives consecutively, that kind of idea. And again, there's a lot of positives to this view. One of them is that this was the majority view, actually, on this text for hundreds of years of church history. It's recognized that divorce has never been a part of God's original plan. It was allowed in the Mosaic era, yes, but Jesus himself said that what God has put together, let no man render asunder. There are some texts that suggest that there are some qualifications or some exceptions to that standard. Nonetheless, the general theme of the Bible is that God hates divorce, that divorce is never considered to be a blessing or a good thing for the church. So there is a lot of, a lot of strength behind that particular understanding that would then say if there's any man who's been divorced and remarried, he's automatically disqualified from the office of elder. And again, there is a wisdom to that. I think the problem here is that it's a background, and it is a once broad. This is Paul's language here. When he says the man must be the husband of one wife, he's communicating this. The man must be maritally pure. The husband who is loyal to his wife. That's the, the general emphasis. And by making that statement, Paul includes underneath that qualification all kinds of issues related to marriage and sexual purity. Paul is not focused here on status, but he is on, uh, focused on character. And his language here is intentionally general, able to address all the moral issues, including issues pertaining to divorce and remarriage, but even far more than that by this general statement. Infidelity in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day was, was rampant. And the, the candidate who is qualified for the office, Paul says to Timothy, the candidate who's qualified cannot have any accusations that has been unfaithful to his wedding vows, to his covenant. And such a quality was certainly greatly needed in the church as an example for the rest of the believers to follow. In that day, as much as in ours, there were all kinds of pressures and cultural expectations from the world that sought to downplay the seriousness of a marriage covenant. And so the church, in order to have order and structure, in order to be established and to flourish, had to have men leading that church whose lives, more specifically, whose commitment to the marriage demonstrated to all what 
what God intended for marriage. And by this statement, what Paul emphasizes here is the priority of covenant faithfulness. That's the issue. And Paul says to Titus, listen, this is very important. This is the first thing to look for. This is the most determining feed out a lot of possible candidates, but look here first. Look at the man's commitment to his marriage vows. That is crucial. One commentator puts it this way, the correct sense here is not quantitative, in other words, wives, but qualitative. The man is truly a one-woman man. There's no other woman in his life. He is totally faithful. He is a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his wedding vows. The church needs those kinds of men, and certainly when those kinds of men are not to to be found, the church will suffer if they are placed in, if men who do not have this quality are placed in, in positions of leadership. Elders must manifest this strict covenant loyalty to their wives because, first and foremost, they've entered into that before the Lord. The wedding ceremony is not just a a ceremony for others, for the public to join in. It is a covenant that is made before God himself. But even more than that, or in addition to that, elders must manifest this because they serve as examples to what the rest of the church must follow. Look at just a couple of texts on this. We saw this back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and following. I won't read all of that, but when the Apostle Paul addresses the Thessalonians, we saw that in that chapter, that he, in very strong language, said this, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And how do you define sanctification? Well, first off, Paul says, this is sanctification. You abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And what Paul is speaking of there is, if you remember, is that Paul is saying that the men in the church... The married men must know how to properly live with their wives in sanctification and honor, and the emphasis there is on covenant loyalty. You could look at another text, such as Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Lifelong exclusive faithfulness to a wife is one of the best, most powerful testimonies of the strength of a man's loyalty. You could consider it this way. It really is a litmus test. Marital faithfulness serves of that litmus test that shows whether a man is able to take on even greater leadership. If a man cannot be loyal to his word in his home, how can he be loyal to his commitments in anything greater? One writer, Ray Pritchard, puts it this way, because if a man is not faithful to his wife, how can he be trusted to be faithful to his obligations elsewhere? If a man cheats on his wife, where else will he cheat? Let's now look at the second domestic qualification here that Paul gives. Again, in the second part of verse 6, Paul then says, If if any man is above reproach, having children who believe. Having children who believe. Paul as he goes through his list, again identifies what is a very determinative and definitive area for testing candidates for leadership, and that is still in the home, and it is with the second most definitive relationship a man will ever have, and that is with his 
children. He speaks of this also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, again emphasizing the fact that there in Ephesus, Timothy was to look at the man in his home and look at how the man raised his own children, that that is definitive. It is descriptive. It is either something that will affirm a candidate for eldership or it will disqualify him regardless of what other capacities and abilities and skills and giftedness that man has. There in 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control, but doing so with all dignity. So coming back now to Titus, as you think of what Paul means here, what is uh, Titus uh, instructed in here? How, what was Titus to look for in the lives of these candidates, particularly as it related to their home life, their fatherhood? And here again, there have been a considerable, uh, there has been a considerable amount of, of ink spilled on all kinds of arguments for and against two views in particular. In fact, this is probably one of the hardest issues to resolve in all of Titus. What does it mean, the language? What does the language mean here when Paul says that the elder must, or the candidate must have children who believe? Well, there's two views, as I said. The first view follows what we read in the NASB translation. The man must have children who believe, that is, who believe in Christ, who have been raised in such a way that they now share the faith of their father. That's the idea of view one. The elder must have children. If his children are not saved, then in the providence of God, it indicates that the man is either not ready or is not qualified for eldership. The second view is a view that is taken by the LSB, and that is that the man must have children who are faithful or obedient, children who have been raised by their father in such a way that they follow their father's commands and they submit to their father's leadership. Like I said, this is a very difficult issue to resolve. And when you even look at the English translations, you see them kind of breaking up halfway on one side and halfway on the other. So in support of the idea that these are believing children, you have the NASB and the ESV, the English Standard Version, as well as the New International Version, all giving that rendering in the text. But on the side of the idea of faithful children, children who have been led to submit to authority, particularly here the Father's authority, you'll have the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, you have the Christian Standard Bible, another newer translation, and then older translations such as the King James Version and the New King James Version. So what is it? What is the right view here? Because this makes a big difference. If you are looking for candidates for eldership, do you look for those candidates who have children and have children who are saved? Or are you looking for candidates who have children that are submissive to their father's leadership? Like I said, this is not an easy issue. In fact, as I have worked through this numerous times over the years, depending on I'm on either one side or the other, because of the arguments in favor of one over the other. And it, it's a difficult issue, and there are good men on both sides of the issue. So what creates the problem? Well, basically, th- this is what makes the problem difficult for us to resolve. Again, I don't believe there was any problem for Titus to figure this out. He understood the language. He knew what, what Paul was intending here. But if you look at view one, the issue is the word believing or faithful, it can be translated in, in, in either way. It has both nuances, active faith, in other words, expressing belief, 
or the idea of faith full and more of a passive addition. That's that adjective that's used there. For those of you who may know a little bit of Greek, it's the adjective pistos is, is the word. And it can have either nuance. Now, in Paul's writing, when Paul uses that adjective and he applies it to people, it does usually mean believing. Let me give you just a few examples. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. This is in Paul's pastoral letters. He says this, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, there there's no debate. It can't be translated as especially of those who are submissive. It's, it truly does speak of saving faith. So there's the word, and it's used to apply to human beings, and it's used to describe those who are Christians. Another text would be 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, and it's speaking here of those slaves who have masters of a certain kind, and Paul gives this exhortation. Those slaves who have believers, not just faithful or submissive men, but believers as their masters, must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of, of the benefit are believers and beloved. So there too, you cannot translate it any other way except as referring to saved individuals, brothers in Christ, regenerate. And Paul uses this word about a half a dozen or up to ten times in his pastoral letters. And in general, it always is used to refer to believers. So why is there a difficulty? Well, the difficulty arises when you look at the argument for view two. By the text and by the parallel with 1 Timothy 3. Remember, I said in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul writes to Timothy, he also describes the kind of children that a candidate must have. And there's a parallel there I'll show you in just a moment. But let's look first at the argument of the context of 1 Timothy chapter, or of, of Titus chapter 6. Paul says he must have faithful children or believing children. Which is it? Well, the answer to a large part is described by the words that follow. Notice in the text, go back to Titus 1 verse 6. He must have children who believe or who are faithful. And then this phrase comes next, used of dissipation or rebellion. That compound phrase does not refer to allegations against the man himself, but against the children. These are children who are not accused not accused of dissipation or rebellion. What's dissipation? Dissipation describes excessive living. It describes wild living. It, it comes from all the way from drunkenness to sexual promiscuity. It covers excessiveness in the area of spending money and, 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 and spending it on food and drink and so on and so forth. In fact, we find a uh, uh, the, the term used in Luke chapter 15 to describe the prodigal son. That's what it means to be in dissipation. The prodigal son for a while lived in dissipation. And Paul says that these children are those who are not accused of wild living, not accused of excess, of sexual promiscuity and drunkenness and all those kinds of things. And they cannot be accused of, notice that next word, rebellion. Rebellion refers to the refusal to submit to authority. It's saying to Titus, look for, for fathers who have children who are neither prodigals nor are their children resistant to authority, whether in the home or in the world. And so when you look at it in those terms, it appears that Paul is defining for us what faithful children are. Very squander their, their father's input and investment into their lives. They're not those who are engaged in excessive living and drunkenness and so on. And they're, they're not children who are rebellious to authorities. 
So those are not necessarily salvific qualities. Those are qualities that mark someone whose life is under control. And so Paul is essentially saying in that case to Titus, look for fathers, look for men. If they have children, look at their children and make sure that their children are not this kind of of children. There's another issue here with view two that helps us understand what Paul is getting at. He also writes, like I said, something similar to Timothy. And he says this in 1 Timothy verse 4, using pretty much the exact same language. Having, although the NASB translates it as keeping, having his children under control. In 1 Timothy, nothing is said of the salvation of the children in that context. And so the argument for this view is such that you look at these two qualifications as really being equal to each other. That what, when Paul says having believing or faithful children, he really means having children who are under control. That's what Titus was to look for. Now, what's the solution to this? Which view is right? And this is a difficult issue. There are views on both sides, really, really good men. And if you would even ask us as elders individually, which view would you personally hold? We would be on different sides. But you can't lead a church that way. When you need to find elders to, to, to serve in the church, you can't have a divided policy. The elders must come together and say, okay, what can we agree to as the standard that we will draw from God's word? And we here at Grace Church have decided that we, at this point, will take view one, that the elders must have children who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And if their children do not, then in the providence of God... He has not called them to the role and function of overseer. Every church congregation, after Titus's time, will need to and does need to make that, that, joint, uh, that, that joint conclusion. When you, when you look at which one is the one, which view is the one that we will abide by? And that's what we have done here at Grace Church. Now, standing even beyond that, elders must manifest an ability. Paul gives this because elders must manifest the ability to raise children successfully. Because these elders, if they are chosen and step into the role, are to serve as examples after which others in the congregation can pattern their own parenting. And again, we see this as an expectation that all fathers would follow. It's not just those who have an aspiration to the office of overseer who need to be careful over how they raise their children. This is an expectation that is put on all who would have children. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, this is not given to candidates for eldership. This is for all fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the lord colossians 21 says fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart we could look at deuteronomy and the instruction given there to raise up children and you could look at the book of proverbs which is filled with instructions for fathers as to how to raise children. This is an expectation that God has for all who would be gifted children, not candidates. But the elder candidates, above all, had to be able to show this in practice, to be able to provide a blueprint, a concrete application in real life that would serve as a help to the rest of the congregation. And that's... That is crucial and yet very Reminded of a statement in Pilgrim's Progress of a man by the name of Talkative. And maybe if you've read 
Pilgrim's Progress, you remember talkative. And uh, this is always, as, as I reread this again, this is always uh, a reminder of the danger of hypocrisy, especially in ministry, where you can be so active and look so good in ministry and yet fail in the home. And again, this is not just for elder candidates or elders. This is for all parents. Let me read this section about talkative. Here, Christian speaks to faithful, these two traveling companions, about a man who joined them whose name was talkative. This is what Christian says of talkative. He talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of the new birth, but he only knows to talk of them. I have been in his family and have observed him both at home and abroad, and I know what I say of him is the truth. His house is as the white of an egg is of savor. There is neither prayer nor sign of repentance for sin. Thus say the common people that know him, a saint abroad and a devil at home. His poor family finds it so, and for my part I am of the opinion that he has, by his wicked life, caused many and fall, and will be, if God prevent not, the ruin of many more. There is nothing so devastating in a home as hypocrisy on the part of parents. And if that hypocrisy then is extended to church leadership, you can understand the devastating impact and why the Apostle Paul would say to Titusson, first and foremost, look at the candidate in his home life. Look at the candidate in terms of his covenant faithfulness to his wife. Is he the husband of one wife? Is he loyal? Is he upholding those wedding vows that he made? Is that commitment standing strong in sickness and in health for better or for worse? And then look also at the relationship that that man has to his children. Is he a saint abroad and a devil at home? Or is he the same in both places? And only if he is the same in both places, a saint, and only if he is faithful, wedding vows, and able to look into the second set of qualifications, how the man lives his life in the church and in society to determine whether he is fit for the office of overseer. We're going to get into that next time when we open the letter to Titus again. But as we go through this, I do want to exhort you in in, in several final closing implications that will also carry through to the rest of our study of this particular passage. First of all, pray for us as elders. Uh, Pray for us who are in the position We are still men at best and nothing more. And so we always are in need of that grace of God to preserve and protect us. And we need you to regularly, consistently be praying for us in that area. I know my own flesh. I know how easy it could be to fail. We need your prayers. We need your involvement in our lives as elders as well to point things out, to point out those blind spots in our lives that we do not see. So pray for us and be involved in our lives and, and don't hesitate to ask questions and to, 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 to ask us about things that you see that may not be consistent with the qualifications listed here. Secondly, Pray for God to raise up new elders. The great need around the world as the gospel is spread is that God would raise up laborers who would fit these qualifications. When we talk with missionaries and when we talk with other pastors from around the country, this is the the common theme over and over and over again. We need godly leaders. Pray for that. 
in the spirit of, of Matthew chapter 9, the ending of that chapter is, as uh, Jesus has beseeched the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers, laborers like this. And then thirdly, the third implication is this. This, this remember, not just for a small group of people within the church. As we go through this list, this is a blueprint for Christian maturity. And God has given these instructions to candidates and to elders, not just because they alone are to strive after and maintain these things, but that this is the picture of order in the church. And more importantly, for you individually, this is the picture of an orderly life. As you strive after these qualities not even thinking of of the office of overseer, but just striving after these things, you will note this. This is the pattern. This is the paradigm for stability, order, and flourishing in your own life. So these are fuel. Pray that the Lord would make them true in increasing and excelling manner. Let's do that even now. Father, we are grateful for the time to be here this morning and to be reminded both in the first hour and now from such precious truths, to be able to come together to sing, to pray together, uh, to see each other and to, to enjoy fellowship, to see the smiles on the faces of your children is such an encouragement to us. And this text in particular is a conviction. And we pray that as we study these things, you would reveal in our own lives the blind spots and areas of weakness. We pray that you would not uh, not allow us to go down the path of ambivalence or perhaps even of despair. But rather, that you would encourage us by this standard, reminding us that by the power of the grace that you have promised to us in the Spirit, that transformation and growth and maturity is not only possible and necessary, but inevitable. There will come a time when we will stand before you, presented by Christ and donning all of his righteousness, not only in status, but in practice. We also pray, Father, that as we seek to implement these things in our own lives and foster them and maintain them, we we think of the needs around the world. We think of all the, the missionaries who are striving in such difficult places because of a lack of such leadership. And so we pray the prayer that Jesus told us to pray that we are to beseech you and ask that you would raise up such men for your church around the world, in this country, in this state, and even for us here in the church as we think of the future. We look to you for that, and we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.